0: Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. We're going to be taking a break from a theme, which this past quarter we've spent talking about epistemology, and probably for the rest of the year we will just be doing a grab bag, the nature of which you'll be familiar with if you followed our first year of this podcast. So to do that today, I have Elliot Grasso with me to talk about the transition from the Reformation to the Enlightenment. Welcome, Elliot. Thank
1: you, Gil. It's great to be here.
0: The last episode where we talked about the period of history before we started focusing down on epistemology specifically, even though we were... Talking about philosophers in roughly chronological order, we weren't really focused on history, was way back in the episode where Naomi and I discussed Boccaccio's Decameron. The next couple of readings that will be happening in the Gutenberg curriculum are concerned with the French Revolution. So today is a broad outline of how did we get from the Middle Ages and what were the general cultural touchstones of the Middle Ages in the West, and how did we get from there to the American and French revolutions. We're not necessarily going to talk specifically about the causes of those specific movements, But we're going to be giving a general historical overview of how did we get from the Middle Ages to what we might call the Enlightenment. Where would you like to begin, Elliot?
1: Well, I think one thing that's helpful to discuss with respect to historical trajectories is the difference between underlying causes and trigger issues. And I'd like to actually start with a a trigger issue for the French Revolution. I know that we said we were not going to talk about the immediate causes of this thing, so I won't go into too much depth. But one of the trigger issues of the French Revolution was this absolutely terrible crop that they had in 1787. There was so much rain and hail. There was hail coming down the size of baseballs. And it was absolutely destroying the crops. And in the wake of this, the cost of a pound of bread, the average Frenchman in the 1780s ate two pounds of bread a day. That was more or less their entire diet. The price of bread skyrocketed because the grain had been destroyed by this incredible hail that came down in the winter prior. And so what ended up happening is the cost of food goes through the roof. People can't feed their families. There's mass panic about survival. And I'm using that as an example to talk about the question of how we think about our survival, both our physical, material survival and also our spiritual survival, and the ways in which human beings permit and rely on other authorities to guarantee those sorts of things. And when people become disappointed and disillusioned with those sorts of faith investments, say in worldly institutions or institutions of the here and now, they start to look for other options because people do want to survive in all kinds of formats and thus rely on those institutions to provide it if they can't people go elsewhere
0: there is a general trend and the french revolution is no different of people wanting some kind of new institution because the current institutions have failed yes all right so given that trend let's go back to the middle ages then and let's talk about what institutional failures were there that led to the peoples of the Middle Ages being up for a new institution.
1: Sure. Well, the interesting thing about the Roman Empire is that at its height, it spans a million square miles. So Rome is quote unquote politically unified under the emperor who is in Rome, but culturally it's very much fragmented. There are different languages, currencies, climates what have you. And so there's a sense in which people are fine with Rome being on top or being Roman, as it were, insofar as it permits and encourages their survival. As Rome, as a political, centralized entity, starts to collapse in the 1460s with the invasion of the barbarians over the Rhine River and as they sweep down through North Africa and then down through the Italian peninsula the remaining bureaucrats who are localized to take care of communities and parishes and things like that are their bishops, their episcopos, their overseers. And so the nature of taking care of local people groups as they are united under this very large, expansive, overly extended Roman empire, transitions into localized and fragmented populations that kind of sit under the umbrella of Christendom. So it's easy to think Rome writ large on a banner is one thing. It's never really one thing. And that becomes apparent when in the course of the military defenses of the Roman Empire receding and dissipating and things like that, people are being attacked by all sorts of Vikings, for example, at least in the north of France. And you have these political structures that emerge, say, through feudalism that are protective mechanisms. So one thing that failed is the Roman military, The Roman military wasn't big and strong enough to adequately take care of a million square miles of land. And I don't know if any institution has ever successfully done that. So that's one piece. In the wake of that falling apart, there arises the church as both a spiritual and temporal helping mechanism for people to survive, not just the here and now, but also the hereafter. The church is here to say participation in this institution is the best way to guarantee your eternal happiness, your eternal longevity. And what happens over the course of the 12th and 13th and 14th centuries is the papacy becomes so strong, powerful, and rich that it becomes a target really for people who have the wrong intentions. And those people are effective in infiltrating that office, and cause division, say, in the Great Schism in the West, which takes place in in the 14th century. So you have, at what point, one pope, then two popes, then three popes, who all refuse to, for the betterment and coherence of the rest of the church, refuse to step down, believing themselves to be rightfully elected. And so when people see that the organizing entity can't even organize itself, they start to wonder, what promises can it actually keep with respect to my temporal and eternal longevity? And people question that, and many turn away from that. So that's another, we could maybe say institutional failure that sort of sets the stage for what becomes the Reformation and then up through the revolutions of the 18th century.
0: So we have with Rome, when Rome is in its heyday, it is expanding, it is uh, bringing a certain political organization and the romans famously let people as long as they were giving tribute do their own thing so there was a measure of freedom that might be different if you were being overtaken by a different overlord but then as it begins to lose its momentum the cracks that the roman empire was holding together become more apparent yes and they start to break apart and we're then left with christendom which does have some institutional power because you have those bishops controlling each area but as that wears on it becomes clear that this is also insufficient at least organizationally which culminates in the reformation so lay out what are the major events of the reformation and How do we go from that being the new institution that's providing hope for folks for whatever they're hoping in to the next phase of Western history?
1: Well, I mean, there are a number of major things, I think, that happen. So if you're just imagine yourself in your society for a moment, and when you see that there are problems or that the ones who you are hoping will deal with the problems that you can't deal with, apparently can't deal with them, well, what do you start to do? You might start to look for other options, other solutions, other ideas, other questions elsewhere that can help you interact with the complexities and challenges that you personally experience. I suspect the people of the 6th, 15th century were no different in that regard. So, what happens interestingly in, in the 1450s are, are two things. One is that the Muslims successfully conquer Constantinople in 1453 in May. This long-standing city of Constantine's that was established in the 330s goes down. This is the Eastern Roman Empire. Prior to and consequent to that, a lot of the Byzantine Greek language scholars who have been teaching philosophy and rhetoric and language and all literature in this part of the world leave. Where they go is to Italy. They go to Florence because Florence is the wealthiest city or maybe second only to Rome in the entire Western continent. They're wealthy because they have the market cornered on the what was then the international banking industry and also on the wool trade in the Mediterranean. So there are wealthy people who have questions, seeing that there are problems with leadership, there's inconsistency, they want to know, are there other options? Greek-speaking scholars arrive with your Plato, your Aristotle, your Aeschylus, and more, and say, look they had these same questions, but they have different kinds of answers. And so people become very interested in what are they asking about and how are they answering it? And are these workable solutions? Are they better than what we had? I know they had problems in the past, but that was a long time ago. Things are different now. We'll handle it better. There's all the kinds of thinking then about how to deal with the complexity. In tandem with that, what you have in the 1450s later and 60s is the proliferation of printing presses. So Johannes Gutenberg, centered near Mainz, Germany, is, is working in secret to produce in great quantities and with greater efficiency and lower cost, first of all, Bibles, but that movable-type printing technology is is replicating very fast. And when you meld that with the advent of paper to Europe, also in the 15th century, You have fast, rapid, affordable, written communication of all these new ideas, sources, conclusions, and questions that prior to the 1450s when Constantinople went down, it was people were looking for solutions, but didn't necessarily have a a plethora of arguably compelling and interesting answers.
0: So we reach this turning point in the middle of the 15th century where... Italian businessmen, essentially, Venetian in particular, are able to pay scholars who are either flocking to Venice because of the monetary prospects before Constantinople falls, or they are fleeing Constantinople falling. And the marketable skill that they have is their scholarship. yes. And so this provides wider number of sources that people can draw on as they're asking the questions of how do we find security? As you alluded to earlier with the Catholic Church, one of the things that the Catholic Church offered was security in the hereafter. And so there were different solutions that came through the Greek tradition or maybe even lost parts of the Latin tradition that were not in vogue. How does this then lead to what we think of as the Reformation. How does there being a wider number of sources lead to revolt again, this sort of monolithic institution, at least in the religious realm, if not the political?
1: Sure, well, I'll quote Thomas Lineker, who was a Greek teacher in Oxford when Erasmus was there and studied under Lineker. Lineker was a translator of the gospel from the original, and he remarked at one point, either this is not the gospel or we are not Christians, in translating the gospel from the Greek into Latin and also English. And so I think the significance of that comment kind of points to the proliferation of the study of Greek. The Septuagint is in Greek, the New Testament is in Greek. So the key text of Christianity is largely a Greek-language book by the time it gets to being translated again. So the translation of the history is very complicated and, and interesting. There's, there's some Latin translations from Greek, meaning translated from Greek into Latin, translated from Hebrew into Latin in the 4th century, but the Catholic Church brokers primarily in Latin because that's the common language of the Roman Empire. The further you get from Rome, the fewer people speak Latin. And so you end up with a set of traditions walking alongside a text that either people don't have the skill to read in its original language. They don't have the skill necessarily to even read it in Latin or see if they can read it. They're taking their best guess. at what is this guy talking about here in this book? Because there's a huge amount of cultural context that help explain what the gospel writers are saying that is hard to get to sometimes. And they don't necessarily have that context. And so once you introduce the Greek language and the study of it and translating the Bible from Greek, suddenly when translation is very tedious and it requires you to get up close and personal with the meaning of what authors are doing. It's not just a mechanical one-to-one translation. So anyone who is interested in translating between languages has to also be interested in meaning. What does this text mean? And the second at which texts become incoherent, an attentive exegete and translator will wonder why. What is it about my understanding that I think is going on is not really adding up here? And as Lineker is translating the Bible, like so many others, they're wondering, the meaning of this text seems to be at odds at points with our theology and what is being taught from pulpits. Now, I'll mention to to give the Catholic Church some due credit, the Dominican order was introduced in the 13th century to help with this very question because you had parish priests all over the place who, whose training was very minimal. Many of them were illiterate. So they're answering people's existential questions with folk wisdom instead of the truth of the Bible or the words of Christ or, or something like that. So they're paying attention to that.
0: Yeah, it's worth noting from way back when we did the podcast with Charlie about Genghis Khan that there is just not a lot of resources to go around. There is not. Resources include not only the manuscripts that you would need in order to read them, but also the training that you would need in order to be able to read them. Yes. Oh, yes. And so Europe is so impoverished after the fall of the Roman Empire that they don't even have what we, in our time, consider basic education. And as education comes back into the west from constantinople that opens a lot of people's eyes to things that are going on i think another event that's attendant to the resurgence of these manuscripts and the resurgence of greek language is and like many events in history this is exemplary of a wider trend rather than a singular cause of what comes next but Lorenzo Valla demonstrates that this document called the Donation of Constantine is a forgery Constantine is emperor in is the 4th century <laughs> and there is this document supposedly handing the great wealth and power and political wherewithal of rome to the catholic church and lorenzo Valla demonstrates beyond any educated person's doubt that this text was in fact written in the 8th century (laughs) that the words and the way that it uses turns of phrase and things of that nature ...are such that this couldn't have been written by Constantine, it's a later forgery. And so this move towards what's often called ad fontes, back to the fountain, back to the sources... ...means that there are cracks in not only the Catholic Church's ability to take care of political and organizational matters within itself, as you were alluding to earlier but also that they are up for accepting forgeries as part of what they're doing. So there is a movement toward adventees, as demonstrated by Valla, Leneker, Erasmus. Where does that go as the Reformation starts to get underway?
1: Sure. Well, I think the stage is fairly well set for someone like Luther. Luther was a German Augustinian monk, who was trained in law, basically civic law. His father was a goldsmith, which meant that he was in charge of employing miners to get gold and overseeing contracts for crafting things that are made out of gold. Often the miners would have disputes with Luther's father about the nature of what they were supposed to do in their contract, be it oral or written. And so Luther's father was like, okay, well, guess what, son? I'm sending you to law school, and you're going to help me sort out all this kind of stuff. So the story goes that there's a point in which Luther is on horseback at night. It's raining, there's lightning. Lightning strikes very near the horse. He's thrown, and he's in an existential awakening, decides, okay, God, you've spared my life here, so I'm going to commit my life to the church. And so it's at this point, having been a lawyer, he enters an Augustinian monastery gets the tonsure, his head shaved on the top, and studies as a novice in that way. And so what's interesting about Luther is that having so much, his brilliant mind, a very sharp mind, having trained that mind in the study of law, which requires a ton of interpretation and making fine distinctions, that's what he's taking to Augustinian Catholicism. That's what he's taking to the Bible. And so I won't retell the whole story about Luther's project and process. But essentially, he struggles as a monk because he wants to be right with God. He wants to make sure that he confesses everything and repents sufficiently so that he can be saved and not damned. And he spends hours and hours making sure he accounts and confesses for all the things. This is obviously taking a deep psychological toll on him, his thoroughness. And so his father superior says, maybe you should be teaching theology instead luther takes a position at the university of wittenberg teaching teaching theology and he's trained in latin and in greek and he's reading paul's letter to the romans and he runs across paul's concepts of saved by faith and faith alone which is completely transformative for him because the role of penitence and uh, remediation of one's sins through various acts of piety and self-flagellation and these sorts of things it, it all that sounds like second tier compared to, well, if you have faith and faith alone, that is sufficient for God, insofar as Paul is speaking on behalf of God. And so this transforms Luther's perspective, and he wants to know, okay, I did all these things, but why did I do them if I'm saved by faith and faith alone? And so he he wants to have a dialogue, uh, like anyone undergoing um, a paradigm shift would want to have. And so he writes these 95 theses. He writes them in Latin. They're posted on the church door in Wittenberg, which is a very common place to post things. It's like the town bulletin board. You would nail stuff to the church door. Why? Because everyone went to church. They would see the thing that you put there. He's putting it there to talk with his colleagues because they didn't have email or chat rooms in the 15 teens. And what happens is that his Theology students who also read Latin read those things, and they take them down and they translate them into German, and then they replicate them on the printing press. And the critique that is implicit in the questions, but which Luther is hoping to have first in like private, civilized, scholarly discourse is the Bible saying x.1 or x.2, quickly gets out of hand due to the translating and the printing. This is a world where it takes two months to get from London to Venice his 95 Theses get from middle Germany to Spain in a week. That's how quickly they were translated and dispersed and replicated. So there's a sense in which the kinds of institutional failures that you and I have been talking about, they're, they're so acute that people are very ready to hear about the distinctions that are not really making sense anymore and have been troubling them, not just at a spiritual level, but also at a material level as well for quite some generations.
0: The other thing In the 95 Theses in particular is there is a building project going on with the Catholic Church. They're going to build St. Peter's Basilica. It's going to take them 100 years to do that, but in order to build a cathedral the size of St. Peter's Basilica, you need quite a lot of money. And one of the means by which they started to put together the money to build St. Peter's Basilica is... Pope authorized officials in Germany to sell indulgences. And so there was the double whammy of the institutional greed to get on with this large building project and the sort of theological hypocrisy of saying, well, if you pay a little bit of money, you don't need to do confession or it doesn't matter if you sin. Because your money will cover all for this building project that is quite lavish. Again, at a time where Europe is not extensively wealthy. They're better off than they were in the heart of the Middle Ages. But it is still quite an elaborate and elite move to try to build this basilica. And so that's part of the criticism that Luther can leverage here is... Not only do I have questions about this theology, but again, we see the institutional abuses that are going on with the Catholic Church. Yeah,
1: and if I could add just a side note here about the nature of these indulgences and taxation in Europe in general, it's hard to overstate that if you're building St. Peter's in late medieval Europe, that's like building the space needle in a third world country. And it's like asking the members of those countries to give you their food, so that you can build it. Taxation wasn't just coins, it was bales of hay, it was wine, it was olives, it was animals. These things that people needed for their livelihood that they believed in good faith. Okay, well, my authority is telling me that if I donate this money or this sheep or these taxes that my loved one will not have to suffer in purgatory.
0: The actual mechanism for the indulgences was the Pope sold the right to sell indulgences to these German officials. So the German officials are the ones handing over money and then they have the ability to go squeeze people for the price of the money that they gave for that building project. So the Pope is working in coin and things that you can use at banks and financial institutions, but then that gets translated to more pedestrian sorts of means. So we've, begun to see the cracks in the institution of the Catholic Church. We discussed how there's a failure for it to organize itself. There is a failure for it to provide the sorts of protections that Rome could provide. We see that there's a hypocrisy there and the Reformation begins to be Very appealing because it's offering an alternative to the institution of the Catholic Church. Now, to be fair, after Luther and the other reformers come on the scene, the Catholic Church does conduct the Council of Trent, which is a reforming movement within the Catholic Church. Very often in naive Protestant tellings of history, you have the Reformation come along... And that's a death nail in this corrupt institution. And then the Reformation sort of carries on the legacy of the West. But that is a oversimplistic history. The Catholic Church is still with us. And it is still a very flawed institution. But during the time of the Reformation, Protestantism is going to be forever a presence in the history of the West from this point forward. But the Catholic Church does take these criticisms seriously, and I should say, just to cover our bases, that during the previous history of the Catholic Church, there had also been reforms made, like you mentioned, with the Dominican orders and so on. So it isn't as if the Catholic Church is just continually sloping downwards, its ebbs and flows, and its trustworthiness, but because of the spark of Luther's protest, and the fact that there was all of this kindling in the form of the ability to disseminate information through the printing press, etc., that means that there is no putting the Catholic Church back together again, at least in the entirety that it had been, say, in the middle of the Middle Ages.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And, I mean, I think it's not unhelpful for Protestants to consider that In reality, probably no one loved the Catholic Church more than Martin Luther. And it was the warts on the face of the Bride of Christ that he wanted people to care about and to attend to those sorts of things. And when it became clear that the ones who were making decisions were either in not a position or unwilling to address those sorts of wounds, that's when Luther realized, okay, I see, I'll have to do something different.
0: Yeah. I think that one of the things that I am flummoxed by on occasion is, in general, how poor Protestant education is in comparison to Catholic education, or particularly Jesuit education. The ability to have an institution means that there's a kind of stability that can be brought to bear in education specifically. Whereas Luther seems to have had this assumption that if everybody just read the Bible for themselves, they would end up with the same conclusions that he did. And that ends up being one of the, I don't know if it's an irony of the Reformation, but it turns out when everybody is allowed to read the Bible, that everybody has a different opinion about what it says.
1: Oh, sure. Well, the famous Catholic critique of Lutheranism is you've traded one pope for a million popes.
0: Right, right. And so you have, fairly early on in the Reformation, you have Zwingli and various other reformers getting together with Luther to hash out and see, can we come to some sort of agreement about what are we going to do in the rubble of the Catholic Church? And it turns out they all disagreed significantly enough that they all went off and did their own thing. So take us from there, Elliot. What happens next?
1: Well, I think as Europe sees the kind of collapse that happens in terms of institutional trust in the wake of the early 15-teens, that's used as a justification for all forms of rebellion against all kinds of authorities. People start to wonder, my lords and vassals, I'm just a peasant. By what right do you rule now if it's not by the right of God or the right of the church or, or things of this nature? Because you're supposed to be protecting us and taking care of us, and and we're over here starving. So you have peasant revolts that emerge in the 1520s, which Luther roundly decries. He says, you have no business, peasants and serfs, responding like this and using this as an excuse to do that. And so what happens throughout the rest of the 16th century, and well up until 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia after the Thirty Years' War, is various forms of Protestants and Catholics attempting, sometimes successfully, largely unsuccessfully, to live and do business as next-door neighbors. So in some places it works for a time. So example, in France, Henry, the, King Henry IV instituted uh, the Edict of Nantes, which was an edict of toleration for Protestants. France was a Catholic country. His Majesty in France was the most Catholic king. But Henry IV said, okay, well, we have to live with our brothers, and we're going to do so peaceably. So you have things like that that are instituted. But up through, say, the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, say Louis XIV changes the crown's perspective on Protestantism, and he revokes the Edict of Nantes in 1685 with the Edict of Fontainebleau, which basically says if you're a Protestant, you can convert or get out, which is one of the reasons that England gets so... Wealthy and productive is all the hard-working, independent Protestants who want to survive and do well, leave Catholic France and go to Protestant England and contribute to the economy there. So in trying to figure out how to live together, there are religious wars, primarily in the Holy Roman Empire, sometimes spilling into eastern France. There's a culminating point, which is known as the Peace of Augsburg. The Peace of Augsburg in 1555 basically reiterates his land, his religion, So say, if you're the Duke of Burgundy or something, and you decide that you're Lutheran and I live in your neighborhood, I gotta be Lutheran too. Whereas if you say that you are Catholic and I live in your neighborhood, I have to be Catholic too. So that doesn't work very well. Particularly in France, there's the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, where many hundreds of Protestants are slaughtered in the streets, tortured publicly, things of this sort. And so what ends up happening starting into the 17th century is that people get really nervous It's in terms of who's going to be the next king, who's going to be the next duke, who's going to be the next political leader. Their religion could go really great for you, or it could go really badly for you if they are particularly dogmatic about what they need you to believe and how.
0: And there are very explosive, sometimes, or attempts at explosive movements prevent the catholic heir say from taking over when there's a protestant let's favor the second son who's a protestant over the first son who's a catholic because it it just work out better for us if the protestant ends up being you know and you have factions within each country who are one flavor or the other and they make moves to have their preference installed this is true in England. For instance, Guy Fox is a Catholic and Parliament is largely Protestant. And so the gunpowder plot is, let's put a bunch of gunpowder under Parliament and blow it up. The storage space was apparently very public, so people found out about it and were like, why is there a bunch of gunpowder here? And they stopped that from happening. But if I can remove this ruler who is on the other team, then the alternative will be this ruler who is on my team. And so there is a a lot of instability under that rubric of who will be in charge next.
1: Sure. And it's easy in today's society, you go out on the street and there's a million different religions and There aren't really any social repercussions if you believe something different from the person sitting next to you on the bus. In 1618, it meant that if you had a change of Holy Roman Emperor, uh, maybe you lost your job in the military, or maybe it meant that you couldn't serve public office anymore, or it was very high stakes this kind of transition. And so in 1618, the question on the table for the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically modern day Germany plus a a bunch of land on either side, was: we have seven guys, seven electors, who elect the next Holy Roman Emperor. We got half on one side, half on the other side, and one that can go either way. And so we go to have a meeting about this, And there's the famous defenestration of Prague, where some officials are defenestrated. They're thrown out of a window into a pile of horse manure. And this kind of triggers the, okay, well, I guess we can't talk, so we got to fight response over who's going to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. Are they going to be Catholic or are they going to be Mm -hmm. Protestant? And so that's one of the earlier world wars. That happened in Europe, where you have nations from France, Germany, Austria, Scandinavia, the English are trying to figure out, like, what do we want to do in the Thirty Years' War? You've got Catholic France supplying money and weapons to the Protestants so that the Protestants will destroy their other Catholic enemies. It's very conniving World War II material. And
0: sometimes you have, we're too weak to do anything, so we're going to be neutral. Oh, yeah. Right? You have... I believe this is the case with England, is they go, we can't afford a war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you have extreme elements of the ruling party. So if you have a Protestant government, you have more extreme Protestants being like, no, we have to fight the war. And then it's not only the Catholics and the Protestants fighting each other. It's extreme Catholics against regular Catholics and so on. One of the things that I think is very interesting is that... One of the places where this gets waged in England is in the Book of Common Prayer. The reason it's called the Book of Common Prayer is it's because this attempt to bridge this gap between Catholics and Protestants. Okay, can we write a book of prayer that everyone can accept, whether they're Catholic or Protestant? And Elizabeth is the extreme middle. If you're too Protestant... If you're leaning towards Puritanism, for instance, she will hunt you down. If you are a Catholic, she will hunt you down. She wants this compromise in the middle. And for those of us who have the history of the United States behind us, it's very strange to learn about this period in some measure. Because we assume that the opposite of tyranny is pluralism. Because that's the world that we live in well obviously we don't have a king because everybody should have freedom of speech and that sort of thing and that is not the direction that europe goes at the time one of the things of say calvin or zwingli is they're called magisterial reformers why magisterial because they're magistrates because one of the things that happens when you have the catholic church it's very convenient that some of the sacraments are births deaths and weddings because that's how we keep track of who all's here mm-hmm. whether they're coming or going and this is how we know what inheritance law is and the anabaptist movement their move was we think that believers should be baptized and not infants one of the things that they said was well We think that people need to be adults who can make their own decisions in order to be baptized and this arose around Zwingli and Zwingli's like yeah but the problem is then we wouldn't know who lives here if we're not baptizing babies if we don't have christenings then we don't have a register i don't know how we would do it and so the way in which the state interacted with its people was so mediated through the church that even when you begin to split off and have Protestant churches instead of Catholic churches, and you have Protestant states instead of Catholic states, those states are still more monarchical than we feel comfortable with in our modern American context. The other thing that I just want to mention as part of this period is it's very common to talk about Germany And France and you said just earlier basically modern Germany but at the time if you go find a map of the Holy Roman Empire and it's just it's vast it's vast and it's a bunch of little provinces like hundreds of little provinces and they're all different colors if you look on a map because it's this is the Duke of such-and-such owns this place and the Duke of such-and-such is like French he's not they're not necessarily all german no like all of the holy roman empire gets divvied up between all of these different nobles and all of these different countries the holy roman emperor himself can be spanish in terms of his parentage but he's french in terms of what titles he has except that it's nominally an italian position because it's the holy roman emperor but the holy roman emperor is in charge of the lands of germany So all of that, all of the way that royal marriages and all of that stuff leads to this being immensely complicated because who's in charge of this thing is so beholden to these monarchical laws about who's the heir and so on and so forth. And so even though there is this sense of there being more freedom... That's not necessarily the case. The people who who are experiencing greater freedom are these various nobles. They get to decide for themselves, are we Protestant or are we Catholic? If you're a regular person on the street, barring you being part of some peasant revolt that gets shut down fairly quickly, you're beholden to whoever the ruling authority is. So, with all of those caveats out of the way... This is the fallout of the Reformation, which, as we talked about with Luther, is a good impulse, right? It's confronting hypocrisy. It's confronting this tyrannical desire for a building project that's totally inappropriate to the population that it's pulling from. Right. So good impulse. But it leads to this kind of chaos. How does Europe pull itself out of this chaos?
1: So the landscape of existential commitments in Europe becomes more and more fractured, which melds with political party and political opposition, which you alluded to in Elizabethanism. And so at the end of the Thirty Years' War, which ends in 1648, with the Peace of Westphalia basically more or less saying, we're going to leave you alone for the most part if you're a Catholic, and we're going to leave you alone for the most part if you are Protestant, and you do you, to put it in modern terms. At the same time this is ending, there's the English Civil War that's taking place up north. It culminates with the execution of Charles I in 1649. And so we get 1648, the religious wars on the continent, end in 1649 we have the execution of of Charles. And so in the wake of this, Thomas Hobbes, who was a political philosopher, writes Leviathan basically— saying the sovereign must be absolute but let's not kid ourselves he's installed by the people who surrender their rights in exchange for their safety forget about god installing the monarch so this is where social contract theory starts to emerge is that well if the church is questionable based on its behavior And it's the one installing the leadership. Well, now the leadership is also questionable. How is that going to be authorized? Well, we're going to go for democratic authorization because it's the many against the one. So many will install one, and then you get to be the one who protects us in exchange for our surrendering of certain rights for our security. And so you have within Europe throughout the 17th century and coinciding with these revolutions in politics, revolutions in the sciences, So revolutions in physics, revolutions in astronomy, revolutions in worldview that you have with your Galileos, your Copernicus's, your Brahe's, etc. And so Europe's sense of your average person's sense of where he or she is situated in the broader cosmos is being continually interrupted by questions about just the universe and what it is and where are we in it and where is God in it and where is our leadership? To To whom can we turn now? Sorts of questions. And so, interestingly, what comes out of this is the extreme Protestant side in England are the Puritans. They leave, they go to North America and start the American project in the early 17th century before the Thirty Years' War starts. And so they survive there for, for many generations and expand and build and do their own work of civilizing the way that Europeans civilize new areas and things like that, build new areas, colonize areas. And so by the time the 18th century rolls around, you've got some interesting conflicts going on between these smaller, distinct groups like the colonists and, like, absolutist monarchy. So Louis XIV lives after the writing of Leviathan by Hobbes, and he lives for a very long time. He dies in 1715, so there's a sense in which the kind of authority that he exercises is incredibly strong and incredibly centralized and incredibly effective in a lot of ways, and also very expensive. So no one is relying on kind of the wrath of God to come down upon them if they don't play nice with the monarch. So what does a monarch have to do? A monarch has to incentivize nobles and others in various sorts of ways so that they can maintain right. power on the top.
0: The history of England and the history of France diverge. They diverge in so many ways, but one of the interesting ways in which they diverge is parliament is the, the voice of the people and the mm-hmm. voice of the nobles and parliament in the conflict in the civil war ends up being stronger than the king which is why they can behead him which is why
1: well the the protestants control mostly the urban areas
0: right right right. yeah and so france on the other hand cardinal richelieu Hmm. is one of the advisors and one of the things that he does is he gets rid of castles for all of the nobles which means that the nobles don't have any kind of position to actually take military action against the crown which means that they are very weak because, as is so often the case, when words fail, things resort to violence. Well, if you're a noble in France, you're not going to resort to violence because you can't, because you don't have any way to win that. And so Louis becomes extremely strong because of the weakening of the nobles. And England, you would have the opposite happen. The monarchy becomes less and less powerful. The monarchy is giving more and more away. It's interesting that the English monarchy is still around because it is very clear at this point that the English monarch has almost no political power. What little political power they have is very informal, whereas they serve more of a ceremonial kind of role is how we describe them. But that is because during this period when all of this is going down, parliament is either taking or Having conceded to them more and more power from the British throne, which means that the British throne is allowed to stay around, which uh, ultimately the French throne will go away, although it's not at the end of the period that we're talking about. So the Peace of Westphalia rolls around, it brings more stability throughout Europe. We now have broad categories of Catholics and Protestants. If you're Catholics and Protestants, we're going to stop fighting each other about that. You also have scientific revolutions going on. And where is the stable, where is the stability that Europe finds itself in as we approach the. American and the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century? Or do you think that we need more context for those?
1: Well, I think we can start there. It seems to me that in many ways, Europe's stability is purely domestic. A lot of their kind of conflict is off-site in various colonial spots in South America and North America. So if that can be deemed at least domestically stable, I'd say that's one of the reasons is that, yeah, they are still at war, but they're only at war or mostly at war over there. But what they're getting out of those wars is they're getting gold and natural resources that are further stabilizing the economies in some way, shape or form. So Europe throughout the the 17th century, if you consider the style and grandeur of Baroque architecture, for example, marble, this gold, that, um, it's just, it's an overwatered plant. It's blossoming like crazy and outgrowing its pot pretty fast, which I think is one of the reasons why, in many ways, it fizzles economically into the 19th century. In some ways, I'm not talking about England and the Industrial Revolution, I'm talking mostly about the continent sure, sure. In, in particular. But I think on the one hand, you get a response from the colonies, at least in the in the New England area, where we've we've been doing just fine without you, and it's great that you're rich and powerful and want to tax us and stuff like that, but we don't really want to do that right now or anymore. And at France, you get the weakening of the French crown and the French economy further, having the French and British fight each over other in the Seven Years' War, which starts in 1756. And so there's this this hankering to fight about something and to maintain a balance of power and sustain the economies through various forms and various philosophies in economies and economies and things like that. So I guess the stability we could talk about would be primarily domestic because by the 18th century, there's a pretty clear line between who's calling the shots with the crown versus parliament and parliament, as you mentioned, is clearly in the lead. Yeah.
0: And then each nation well, nation's probably anachronistic, but each country with their colonies. Yes. Colonies are subordinated to the mother country. And so perhaps it's not stability, maybe it's we're just in an uptick hmm. that there's enough resources coming from the colonies during the eighteenth century that seems like it's stability. Sure. <laughs> in the countries of origin. I think this is significant because this is what I mean, this is part of what Adam Smith is talking about in Wealth of Nations, Mm -hmm. which doesn't get published until 1776. But his observation is, look, Spain's been getting silver from South America for quite a while. And you would think with all the silver that they've been getting, that they would be way wealthier than England. But turns out they're not. And that's because the Spanish impression is that the wealth of a nation is how much silver do they have and the actual thing that makes a country wealthy is its ability to we would say gross domestic product or something like that but really that's signifying what can this country do for itself If you're spending all of your money because you can't do anything for yourself, you may have a lot of cash at the beginning of that, but you're going to lose it real quick. And so England is a wealthier country than Spain, following Smith's observations, because England actually develops people within its country that can do all the sorts of things that are dealing with the kinds of trade and various things that are happening throughout the world whereas Spain has to pay mercenaries or Italy or something to do things for them. And so because we are in a period where there is colonial rule, the colonies are sending all of these resources to the parent countries, and they have not yet tapped those resources to such an extent that you start to feel the cost of that. And so you can afford to spend... All of those resources on Baroque architecture, etc. But there will come a period where that is not the case, and that is one of the reasons that will lead to the revolution in France. All right, Elliot, any final comments or any last little anecdotes or examples of anything that we need to have in order to have the framework necessary? In the coming weeks as we talk about the origins of the French Revolution and things of that nature. Sure, I
1: would add one more piece which is that the impact of Newton's Principia in 1689 cannot be overstated. There's a part, there's a number of reasons why this is. In broad strokes, if a human being can use mathematics to adequately and thoroughly articulate the motions of the heavenly bodies, then that means that science and mathematics are a far more powerful descriptive tool than we ever dared imagine. And if they can be more descriptive than we ever imagined, then perhaps they can even become more prescriptive than we ever imagined. Now, the question always comes up in a class where, okay, well, Joe Blow on the street's like not reading the Principia on his coffee break.
0: So <laughs> how how
1: does that work exactly? Yeah. Well, the way it worked is that Voltaire started going over to England in the 1720s. He became persona non grata for his perspective on monarchies and abusive church authorities and stuff like that. So he would find himself in England taking a planned break from being a Frenchman. And he was just delighted with the English and how much freedom and ease they seemed to have in their lives, how much e- economic agency the average blacksmith had it just totally impressed him. And so Voltaire, being incredibly learned in languages, got a hold of Newton's Principia in Latin and basically created a Reader's Digest version of it in French and had it published in France. And so one of the things that kind of sparks the enlightenment that kind of starts to reach its fullness in the 1750s and 60s is the access to new English discoveries in mathematics and sciences that are coming from Newton made accessible by Voltaire. And so I think it's this kind of final piece that gives people enough hope in bettering and perfecting this world that is sufficient to propel people through blood and violence in the revolution with the hope of cracks and eggs to make an omelet sort of mentality, having the church and the aristocracy thoroughly discredited over the past couple centuries of religious warfare and institutional failure and, and abuses of that sort. So I, I would put that last piece in place yeah. for listeners to think about also. Yeah.
0: I think that last piece is interesting because there is no silver bullet as we were talking about during this past quarter in terms of epistemology, particularly the episode we did with Charlie about the science curriculum, which is we talk about we talked about in that episode how there Charlie used to have great hope in What we call the scientific method. Well, if we can just get this one move, this one technique to use to find truth, then that's going to deal with all of the problem. And that seems like it's a perennial human temptation, as we've noted before. And having the hope that a mathematical description of sociology, for instance, that is a big thing during the French Revolution is geometric social planning and it lacks a context that i don't know feels obvious but was not because there was such hope in this new thing that we thought that it could revolutionize everything i think that there is a little bit of a jurassic park reaction to any new thing that comes up for a lot of people it's a fictitious story about people creating dinosaurs but people have seen Jurassic Park and someone talks about like CRISPR, a gene manipulation technology, or AI this past year. And people are, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem great.
1: <laughs> yeah. The Enlightenment project, I think, can be summarized in perhaps this way, which is the complete dedication to the utter annihilation of suffering in this life and you have to appreciate on some levels the best possible motives for considering that and dealing with that and helping people get through what is undebatably a difficult existence at times for very many and the belief that is possible is i think what drives so much of how the late 18th century closes and how we enter the 19th century
0: well it's it goes back to that thing that we were saying about luther noble motives Yeah. Possibly noblest of motives. But the fallout of human beings attempting to improve things, we just, we make a mess of the whole thing.
1: It's hard to foresee the unforeseeable.
0: I don't know. There's something to, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, as we go on to talk about the French Revolution as it is contrasted with the American Revolution. I don't know. There's something to people have to have messy, suffering full lives, and that actually leads to less messy suffering <laughs> than when you go, here's the prescription and rush headlong into that.
1: But I, it strikes me that there's a really big distinction in how one might posture oneself in response to this is hard and I'm going to yeah. do my best to live with it and confront it honestly yeah. and struggle with God to move forward versus this is completely unnecessary and yeah. it's only happening because bad people are making it happen to right. me. I'm not saying that never happens. That happens plenty, but I, I think the posture of the human being to endure and proceed with one's existence, the way one thinks about those two options, I think make, can make a huge difference.
0: Knowing that something is going to be difficult by its very nature allows that difficulty to be tolerable in a way that assuming that it's not going to be difficult, totally changes.
1: That's a very ironic way to... Yeah, but I think that's true.
0: I think it's one of the things that we try to do here at Gutenberg is tell people, like, reading's actually really hard. (laughs) Actually learning stuff is really hard. You may not have experienced the level of exhaustion that wrestling with another mind can really require of you. Hmm. And... Just know that, and we wish that it were not the case, but if it is true that things worth doing are painful, then it's better to prepare people for that pain than not to do worthwhile things, I think, probably.
1: Yeah. The point, it seems to me, is not merely to feel better, but to be better. Yeah. And that our options aren't between living an easy life and a hard life, but between living an easy life and a good life.
0: I think there's a variation there, because there's also a way of doing things where the nature of the difficulty is lied about, so that you can simulate difficulty. So there's a certain expectation of what's going on there, and that's... When it comes to something like the French Revolution, or more famously, the Bolshevik Revolution, the famous saying is to make an omelette, you got to crack a few eggs, right? The nature of the suffering is such that for the good of all humanity, these people will have to die now. And being in a state of being deceived, Mm -hmm. there are two ways to fall off the horse to come back to Luther. Right. There's the way where you don't think it's difficult. And I don't know that this is actually corresponding to his example of <laughs> a man falling off a horse. It's probably close. Someone will check me on this, hopefully. But there's the way to fall off the horse where you go, this isn't actually difficult. Then you never do anything worthwhile because you're not confronting difficulty. Or you say the difficulty is in this particular way, which is not in conformity with reality. And both of those lead to different kinds of suffering that are not productive.
1: (laughs) Oh, sure. And I think this is where I think modern Marxism suffers from deep naivety, as Marx himself did in believing that once you fixed the problem, it would stay fixed somehow.
0: Well, on that chipper note... (laughs) (laughs) Excelsior! No, no, I think that that gives us a little bit of perspective on this transition from the Middle Ages to right before the revolutions in the United States and France. I think we're going to mainly focus on the French Revolution because there's a lot of continental philosophy that's responding to either preparing people to revolt in France or responding to the revolt in France. That's what we'll be mainly focusing on. But in future episodes, we may also contrast the French Revolution with the American Revolution because they're just rife for comparison. So thanks for coming on and talking and giving us this broad overview, Elliot.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Gil. It was a pleasure as always.
0: If folks have questions or comments or want to call me out on misappropriating the uh, falling off the horse analogy by Martin Luther, you can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. And we will be back in a little while to talk about more books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College.